0: Welcome to episode 11 of the Launch Angle podcast. In this episode, Drew and I discuss nutrition and energy balance, some of the basics, and a good overview there. And the reason for this is because actually a little argument that Drew and I had earlier this week um, where we had some disagreements over a topic in nutrition. And this disagreement actually led us to some interesting insights uh, about how we form opinions about nutrition and how we go about questioning the evidence and research that we use to back up those opinions. So it was a really productive conversation. Uh, We decided to go over the the basics of energy balance and nutrition to give the listener without a background in this um, kind of a good foundation starting point to understand some of the more complex things we talk about later. And again, as you'll hear, there was a lot of uh, great insights that Drew and I garnered from this uh, exercise in uh, arguing with each other. So uh, we hope this will be the first of many nutrition episodes in the future. So uh, we look forward to hearing everyone's feedback and hope you enjoy All right, <laughs> Drew and I had a blowout fight this week. Um, wasn't sure if we were going to do even do the podcast because the fight was it was that bad. Um,
1: it was pretty bad. There are memes being thrown at me. Allegations about my nutritional credibility that were unfounded and weaponized against me. Um, But I'm still here. Showed my face in James' apartment. Gonna keep this podcast tidy because I need to go to Mexico. Also, just being around James right now is just a terrible experience. But we are back here for you guys and we wanted to do the pod. So
0: this is will be the last week. I'm sure. I'm almost positive. Um, no, not actually. And the fight wasn't actually that bad. But it uh, Dr- drew and I had some n- new, not even disagreements. Honestly, we just had a uh, spirited debate about nutrition. And I don't even know. I, I honestly don't. Not even sure what points either either of us made. Um, it was kind of just like uh, squabbling. Um, but it was interesting an interesting conversation.
1: Yeah, I think a lot of it comes from the fact that I'm in sports nutrition too, and you've kind of been more of the health longevity lifespan kind of bent on things. It's a little bit more mechanistic. And I think we've had some disagreements probably based upon that you've gone a lot deeper into nutrition, I would say in terms of the mechanisms and the biochemistry just due to your background. Uh, versus mine is a little bit more outcome based especially um with sports nutrition yeah
0: i don't we i don 't think we actually even disagree that heavily on anything and I should say that my takes on nutrition should be taken with like five grams of salt. I have not been in that world for a couple of years since I dropped out of grad school or and, and like done any serious thinking about nutrition in a way where I can have an opinion that anybody should even take that seriously um but no what you're saying is right my in my the reason the whole reason i went to grad school like one of the big um uh motivators for that and in one of the big inspirations for that was david sinclair's lifespan book i just found it really interesting people can you know say what they want about david sinclair's nutrition takes and you know i, I don't i i don't know the validity of, of many of them at this point i know a lot of people get on him about his nutrition takes, but just the, the concept of, uh, being able to go down to like a biochemical level and talk about all these different mechanisms and kind of levers you can, you can pull on with, um, certain nutrient profiles and things like that and how they may impact longevity. I just always found really interesting. And it's always how I've thought about how my own uh, health and nutrition is through a lens of just like what would make me live the longest and the healthiest for the longest amount of time. Whereas you are in sports nutrition and obviously the um, w- w- what's preferred there is per- performance, which maybe we can talk a little bit about how the trade-offs between performance and longevity um, as, as good as we can speak to it. Cause I think there are some trade-offs.
1: Yeah, I think, Part of it too with sports nutrition is that oftentimes you have very defined outcomes that you're looking at. So in sports nutrition, you know, it's going to be one rep max on a bench press. It's going to be maybe a deadlift or something like that where you have pretty defined outcomes, whether it's strength, hypertrophy, endurance, and then changes in body weight. And I think Just because a lot of those people are exercising as well, you can really see effects between groups and it's a little bit easier to set up studies versus I think in a little bit more of the um, other forms of nutrition that's maybe a little bit more clinical or biochemical. You're really looking at mechanisms and potentially what happens in to start probably more like rat models um, and trying to see. You know, if we introduce this one thing, let's say it's fructose in some um, some proportion, what's the effect um, on that mouse? You know, versus sports nutrition is a little bit more applied. Generally, from what I've seen, you can always take something from the study as long as it's a high quality study.
0: Yeah. And to just give it a quick example of where the difference, where there's differences between like sports performance nutrition and then how. I guess people in the kind of longevity research community think about um, nutrition is when it comes to insulin, for example, we had this conversation, whereas, you know, I guess there's some research, I guess, to show, and again, none of this is medical advice and neither of us are PhDs or anything like that, but um, I I think there's some research to show that like circulating insulin levels can be correlated with, you know, maybe a higher risk of cancer because insulin is a growth hormone. And then, um, it can cause the proliferation of, uh, cancer cells over enough time. If you have, you know, higher than normal circulating insulin due to a diet that's, you know, maybe high in carbohydrate, um, for an athlete, that's less of a concern because one, they're just in better shape. They have more muscle. They have, um, more need for glucose. They're more glucose tolerant. Um, so their insulin levels are going to be different than somebody who is 75 years old, and is at a probably just, you know, on average, much greater cancer risk and has to worry about different things other than their performance of their muscles. And so that's just kind of one example of where things differ. Whereas like this, the athlete might not care as much about insulin spikes, because they're just more glucose tolerant versus the person who's like 75 and is trying to maximize their health and lifespan uh, might care more about those insulin spikes. So that's just a quick example
1: yeah. Do you want to just kind of like cover real quick, like kind of what insulin is and what it does just on like a three or 30,000 foot view kind of stance?
0: Yeah. So insulin is a hormone that is responsible for it. Main, main responsibility is helping your cells take up glucose. So you eat say like a piece of white bread, that's carbohydrate, it gets broken down into glucose, the simplest, uh, molecule of, of carbohydrate. And then your body, your body can't do anything with circulating, um, glucose unless insulin is present. So your body, your pancreas releases insulin, insulin. You can think of it like a key that unlocks cells to be able to take up that glucose from your bloodstream. Um, people with, uh, type one diabetes don't produce insulin due to an autoimmune condition where they're, pancreatic beta cells get attacked by their immune system, so they can't actually produce insulin. And then people with type 2 diabetes can produce insulin, but their uh, cells, they've become insulin resistant. They no longer respond to the insulin because they've been exposed to it in such high quantities for so long. Uh, So that's just like the quick high-level
1: view of what insulin does. Yeah, exactly. And then also people with type 2 diabetes can be insulin dependent if they're just enough time where they are um they have diabetes and you just like keep trying to um like work with that mechanism for so long i don't know the exact biochemistry of it but people with type 2 diabetes can be insulin dependent as well but that's usually like further down the road um but yeah so i think that kind of sets the stage well the only few things that i want to kind of introduce because i think that we're going to get maybe into the uh not the the argument that we had, but what we were discussing is kind of just a quick review of macronutrients, because I think that we're going to be throwing these around a lot. And I think that some people have somewhat of an understanding about them, but um, probably to a pretty low degree. So to start, we have uh, protein, which is four grams per um, or four calories per gram, and Really what it does is it helps with the transport of hormones. It helps with body structure. And it's one of the molecules that's the most satiating. So we're going to kind of keep that in mind when we're talking about some of the other studies. Um, and yeah, it really just helps to generate tissue. Carbs, source of energy, uh, four calories per gram. And also help to kind of bring water into the cell, uh, which is why they help a little bit with um, or cutting them out of your diet. Uh, such as keto you'll see a lot of drops in weight because of the uh, reduce in body water and then also due to the um, effects that it has on glycogen Uh, you have stored carbs as glycogen we call it and that can be a few pounds so that will kind of potentially come into play further down the line in the argument and then the other one is fats which are nine calories per gram Um, and These really just help with the absorption of hormones and then, I mean, the absorption of vitamins and the production of hormones. Maybe anything else you'd add? Yeah, I was
0: saying maybe stop to explain what you mean by four calories per gram and nine calories per gram. So, what Drew is referring to is the energy density of these different macronutrients. So, calorie is just a unit. Of measurement to measure the energy stored in thermo the thermodynamic energy stored in food um so it's one one calorie um is the unit and then so uh, a gram of protein has is it a gram of protein has four calories four calories per gram is that what you said
1: yeah it's so four calories per gram
0: yeah so four there are four calories in every gram of protein and then nine and then four also for carbohydrate and then nine for fat, which is why fat, uh, foods with fat tend to have more calories because fat just is as a macronutrient, um, is the most dense, uh, calorically speaking.
1: Exactly. And then, so do you want to kind of frame, I guess, where we had disagreements earlier, um, in terms of like the mechanisms by which we gain weight essentially?
0: Yeah, I think we should even go back further, though, to where how the original disagreement started, which is, I think, even more useful for people, which is I would send Drew a podcast with a doctor talking and she was talking about nutrition-related things. Uh, we don't have to get into exactly what it was, but um, uh, Drew, Drew would take an issue with the fact that she was kind of just saying things that you'll hear a lot of people in the health space say. Phrases like, well, we know from this study, or we know this, and we know that, we know this does this, and um, nobody ever, partially just out of practicality of it, if you hear somebody on a podcast talking about a health-related claim or a nutrition-related claim, chances are they're not going to cite the exact study where they heard what they heard from, so they're probably just going to say, well, we know this from, or studies have shown, and... Uh I, I I think Drew take an issue with, with this because it was it can be misleading for people and it frames nutrition in a way when it comes from a source of authority where it could be misleading and people could say think that it ha- carries more weight than it might without actually looking into the research behind it or knowing about the research behind it, which kind of led to a broader conversation of like how you should actually like the work you should put in to form an opinion about these kinds of things and it kind of led to a constructive conversation between the two of us where uh, we both kind of committed to when we take issue now with some of these claims uh, we realize that we just kind of get skeptical about it and then defend our own stance on it without actually digging deep into the other person's argument to be able to what's called steel man the argument and you know present the argument in the best light possible and understand it as best we can so that we can formulate um, the best possible counter argument. So it ended up being a really constructive uh, conversation.
1: Yeah, I would definitely agree. And um, yeah, I think it's going to be productive going forward, just kind of challenging each other to steal me the argument and understand it a little bit better. I would just say the only nuance that I would kind of add is that the thing that I took the most issue with was that she was basically saying that what we know is that pesticides in the soil, and that's used in agriculture, are obesogenic. And basically, when she was defining the obesity problem, that was the first reason that she gave for the obesity epidemic, which to me saying, like, we know that this is the case, is kind of like not fully in line with the consensus, I guess I would say, in the literature, it might be a more emerging thing um, that's kind of up and coming in the literature. Um, I haven't looked into it enough to know, but it's not the, the common thought. So I kind of took issue with her presenting that as basically the main culprit uh, for the obesity epidemic. And um, yeah, I, w- I would just kind of start it there. Um, and we kind of had a broader discussion, I think, about uh, calories and like energy balance.
0: Yeah, and that led to us, I guess, discovering that we had some, I guess not disagreements, but different understandings of how people gain fat, how people lose fat, what really matters um, when it comes to thinking about your diet. And I think what we kind of ended up, the point we ended up coming to was uh, we can, we kind of get to the same place through different ways and it's it's kind of both colored through I guess how we look at nutrition, which is drew more of a, from a performance end, and then me just trying to all I ever really care about with it is just what what would maximize uh lifespan and and health span
1: yeah, and I think that's definitely uh I agree, but also it's I come from it from a point of view that oftentimes. As long as somebody's not at the complete upper echelon of performance, they are going to be increasing lifespan as a result of their uh improved nutrition and exercise. So essentially, like I think David Sinclair introduced and a lot of people in longevity introduced this concept of like, well, you have trade-offs between longevity and performance, right? And Yes, that's true at the 1% level, maybe even at the 10% best athlete in the world level. But if you're a weekend warrior that's just running, you know, maybe half marathons or 5Ks and like lifting pretty hard in the gym, that is not going to shorten your lifespan. That is not performance. And so I think the way that we define performance needs to be a lot more scrupulous and discerning.
0: Yeah, and going off that, we can kind of paint more of a picture for people. Of what we're talking about, when we're talking about like 1% of performance and 1% of longevity. So, um, and th- these are examples coming from stuff I've listened to with like Peter Attia. When you're thinking about somebody who's in the 1% of performance, who um, their, their actual uh, physical performance, and then the nutritional needs that they have to keep up that performance, where it might actually be uh possibly shortening their life and and harming them is the people who are doing um you know regularly doing like ultra marathons or your top 0.5% of like um bike like athletes and bicyclists in the world people who um are just putting like their cardiovascular system and their muscles just through the paces day in and day out competing at the highest, uh, possible level. And then on the other end, on the longevity end is the people who are doing, uh, who are trying to maximize as much as they can based off of the, the current literature. These, you know, maybe a, a one seven day fast a year, they're doing, you know, a one, like a five, three to five day fast a month. And, um, they're doing caloric restriction and, Um, limiting certain amino acids in the diet. So those are kind of like the two extremes. Um, And then for most people, that doesn't really matter.
1: (laughs) Yeah. And I would say, yeah, for the vast majority of people, I think the the David Sinclair stuff is still, I guess, emerging and the longevity space. And I, I honestly haven't looked into it enough, but I know with enough certainty that exercising frequently and probably having, you know, a um, solid weight and body composition is probably going to be best for everyone. And then I think some of these extreme things, um, like seven-day fasts and things like that, potentially um, useful. We'll see it as the research kind of comes out as well. But kind of going back to the mechanism thing. I think that a lot of times we will see effects in rats or even see um, just effects in humans in one mechanism. And then we generalize that to an outcome. And then so it's really important that we actually go from an outcome based approach to mechanism instead of the opposite. Right. So we'd want to see, OK, we have people that are doing seven day fast. What is the outcome between the two and we could look at a number of variables. And then from there, if there's effects in any of those variables, we can try to dive into what the mechanism would be instead of, okay, we're going to do a seven day fast and we're going to see what mechanisms are affected. And then just kind of guess at what the outcomes could be. Cause this is a, a Lane Norton example, which might ruffle James's feathers. He was memeing me with Lane Norton and all this stuff this week. Um, But if somebody were to tell you um, that your blood pressure increased, there was an activity where your blood pressure increased and your heart rate increased and you had more adrenaline and there was an energy crisis in your body, you'd be like, whoa, I want to stay away from that. But that thing would be exercise. So like if we just look at the mechanism, it would seem like a really bad thing to engage in. But we know that exercise is one of the best things that you can do for your health and your well-being.
0: Yeah. Uh, Well, to set the record straight, I have no issue with Lane Norton. I was just joking with with Drew this week. I actually have never really looked into Lane Norton stuff enough. Um, And Drew turned me on to Lane Norton this week. And I I think he has a lot of great stuff. Um, And I, I, you know, as much as Drew and I had some half-baked arguments this week about it, um, I do actually really agree with his approach of looking at Again, and this is what's most useful for most, the vast majority of people is just looking at outcomes first, instead of becoming a mechanism warrior who knows, you know, all this fancy biochemistry, um, that you might see like in in vitro models so cell models or like in rat models that may not be, uh, a, you may not be able to extrapolate what's happening there up to the, the human level, um. I will say though, that one, that one example that you gave with exercise, if you just kind of take it a step further though, I wonder how this, not like if it invalidates looking at mechanisms, but it's like, if you just extended the time of how you look at those mechanisms, you'd say, okay, somebody, there's this thing that happens where somebody's heart rate, blood pressure, heart and blood pressure go up a ton, their breathing rate goes up a ton um, lactic acid goes through the roof, stay away from that. But if you just expand the timeout, uh, you would see, okay, well, hold on. Now their resting heart rate goes down from this and, um, their, uh, arterial walls are more elastic from this and their resting breathing rate is lower because of this. And, uh, all, all these things, um, you, you'd see a benefit at a mechanistic level. I don't know if that's just like splitting hairs, but, um, but yeah, go ahead.
1: Yeah, I mean, I I think that's a, a good criticism. And I think it just gets into the fact that a lot of times with nutrition, like we can go much longer with our study length if we're using rats. Right. So I think that's what you're kind of getting at. But it's really hard. And this is a criticism of a lot of the nutrition literature. It's really hard to control these variables over a long term because, you know, you get compensated for some of these studies, but it's not like you're making enough to quit your job, so you're not going to stay in some metabolic chamber and then you know follow a, a diet for a year long where everything's controlled down to the macronutrient right
0: yeah and I, I was about to say this is actually something worth talking about, and maybe you can talk about it a little bit better, but like the hierarchy of evidence and um, also. Some of the caveats people need to be aware of with nutrition. This should honestly, now that I'm saying it, this should be, we're a little pressed for time today, but this should be, we'll circle back to this, just a, so an episode that we do where this is the topic, kind of like we did with career, um, talking about maybe a little bit of like how to evaluate a study, but then also just stuff around navigating the nutrition world. I think I found out reading one of Lane's articles today about red pen reviews, which is. Uh website from I think it's Stephen Guynet that guy uh he runs it, and it's a website they just review nutrition books for how accurate they are, which I think is I have to check it out. I haven't checked it out yet, but um the the thing that people need to know about nutrition studies is like just think about it. you actually can't study diets in humans for a really considerable amount of time. It's just not possible. When, if you're studying a diet in somebody, in, in people, and it's really well controlled, the the people are they're in a metabolic ward, which basically means they're they're in like a hospital where everything they're doing is being monitored. Their meals are being so tightly controlled. It's the only food they're getting. You can guarantee they're not getting any outside food. Um, You can also uh, track things like all their, their metabolic um, metrics, things like that. But most other nutrition studies are just done as like survey studies where you literally just, you're going off people's word of what do they eat? What do they say they eat? Um, or you're recommending a diet, but then you're sending the people home. You, you don't have the budget to all the time do these metabolic word studies. And then on top of that, you're only ever doing these studies for maybe six weeks, maybe eight weeks on on, on the kind of like the higher end. Um, it, there just hasn't been, and I don't see how there will be at this moment, a study where You have metabolic ward level control and then all other lifestyle factor control uh, for a person's lifespan, which is like what you would want to ultimate – that would be like the ultimate nutrition study if you're going to test – in the most perfect ideal world, that's where you would test all these diets and things like that. It's just not possible.
1: Yeah, it's definitely not possible. And then even it's like free – like if you're living in the free world versus living in the metabolic ward, like what effects does that have psychologically on you? And that plays into it. It's like, you just can't win. Um, I think you said this on another podcast. It's like, there's no benefits, just trade-offs. Was that what it was? Yeah, yeah. There's
0: no, well, there's no solutions, only trade-offs. That's what it was. Yeah. But on kind of what you're saying too, like, yeah, what are the factors? Uh, what? what a, how does it affect you if they're just living in a metabolic ward for the rest of their life? That brings up for me, Blue Zones and that whole idea, which people can look it up, but there's just these seven places in the world. It's got Dan Buettner, I think he was a National Geographic um, film, or documentarian, I think who um, he just, he he went around and he found these seven places in the world, like Greece and Japan and Italy, uh, Loma Linda, California, interestingly enough, is a reason for that. um, Where the people, they had the most uh, centenarians. Um compared to other places in the world like an abnormal concentration of people living to a hundred and what he kind of finds is and and reports on is like the factors go you have, you have people in these in these regions of the world who are living to a hundred and they smoke like wh- what you're finding is it's there's you know uh for longevity reasons like relationships and social reasons for living are so important uh have waking up and having a purpose as like nebulous as that sounds it for these people time and again when they interview them it's because they have to get up and tend to the garden or they have to get up and like they live in, they have close family ties, they have to get up and take care of their great, great grandchildren. Like They have reasons for getting up. They also have pretty healthy diets, um, but some of them smoke and people have said, or, or drink heavily and people are like, why is that? And uh, another thing that nobody really talks about, but it's just a fact of it is people have exceptional genes for longevity too. They, these are, they're known genes that are exceptional for longevity and that's not really anything you can do about. Um, but it's just important to keep in mind these other factors.
1: Yeah, and just to circle back to um, the survey-based aspect of the studies, that's completely right. Um, a lot of the, let would say, more clinical or general nutrition, less so sports nutrition from what I've seen uh, studies, they use what's called a food frequency questionnaire or a 24-hour recall. And both of them have severe limitations. They're still You can still use them and derive some – what decent information, but basically a food frequency questionnaire is there's a number of foods and food groups where it's asking you, um, how many times you consume them in a given, whatever it is, I think three month period usually. Um, so it might say, you know, red meat, Do you consume it once per week, once per month or once every three months. And, you know, for me, I don't even know what I had three days ago for lunch so it's really hard to say like a generalized trend over a long period of time that doesn't mean that they're completely useless it's just it has limitations then the other one is a 24-hour diet recall which is a little bit more concise because it's just the past 24 hours although you know a limitation of that is that you're only capturing a short time period so Just because James went out and had wings last night with a side of fries, um, that doesn't mean that he does that frequently. You know, it could have been a Saturday night, and it's a really rare thing. So there's always limitations with nutrition research and um, oftentimes in terms of the psychological aspects, um, but we can kind of
0: potentially get into that a little bit later. Another one of the limitations, too, with the surveys is just the bias that people have, like... You know, you may not think you would do this, and but who knows? But on average, it's like people don't. If if people feel guilty about what they ate, and they know somebody's going to be looking at the results of this, they may not want to accurately report. Um, just as like a fact of of kind of human nature, like on average, we like to talk more about good things about ourselves and kind of hide more of the bad things. Um, if you know, for the last you know three months, you've been. And again, nothing wrong with it, but just like eating a pint of ice cream every night, you might not want to disclose that. Like it just, or you might downplay it. Like I only have it like once a week um, just because that, that's how people, and I, yeah, I think I would probably do, do something similar if if I wasn't uh, aware of the fact that that bias exists in those kind of studies. So that's just another thing to keep in mind.
1: Yeah. So I think we've now kind of uh, covered the way that nutrition research gets done, we've covered a little bit about insulin and then we also covered a little bit about macronutrients. So um, do we want to come back to kind of the, um, I guess, disagreements that we had and then like where we kind of came out um, because of it?
0: Yeah, sure. Uh, Yeah. How do you want to start that?
1: Yeah. So I'd say that um, basically there's these two different camps in nutrition And one of them is basically just calories in, calories out. Um, And that just says, you know, as long as you're um, burning enough calories, the same amount that you are consuming, then you're going to stay as a normal weight. And then changes in that balance up will cause weight gain and decreases will cause weight loss. And then there's another camp, which the theory is the carb insulin model of obesity, I believe. And essentially, what it says is that carbohydrate and specifically refined sugar and um, fructose is uniquely responsible for obesity. And the reason for that is because, um, as James mentioned, um, insulin is almost like a key that brings glucose into the cells. And one of the cells that it brings uh, glucose into is fat cells. And essentially, the the CIM, uh, carb insulin model of obesity posits that it's not actually the overeating that causes obesity. It's the spikes in insulin, blood sugar, um, that happen because of carbs that makes us overeat because the energy basically gets trapped in the, in the, um, in the fat tissue. So it's not that you're overeating and that's causing obesity. It's basically that you're eating a lot of carbs glucose fructose that's being put in the cell and then your body is basically saying well we don't have any available energy because it's all in the cells so you need to eat more um and then like i said there's the other model of um of seeing like the reason for our weight gain epidemic and uh we can kind of get into that after this.
0: yeah and like i had actually never heard that part first of all i'd i never even referred to it as the carb insulin model of obesity i think this is probably just how i learned it in college and and it's become just popular culture now that eat sugar eating sugar makes you fat like that um we've grown up with that as the kind of the party line in nutrition before that in the uh 80s and 90s is when you had uh the low fat uh trend where everybody thought well fat makes you fat so um historically it's it's like in the 70s and 80s is when you you get this wave of um everything becomes low fat people think they can eat everything just because it says low fat um meanwhile it was just got to make up for the fat they just loaded it with sugar because nobody thought sugar was really that bad for you um and then obesity just skyrocketed through then um what lane norton talks about is a lot of these people who uh Kind of show these graphs of obesity skyrocketing stop at around the year like two thousand and two two thousand and three, because around that time is when we became aware of the role that sugar might be playing in obesity, and people actually dramatically ramped down the amount of sugar that they ate that and and fat content and food went up and you know you see this now with like the popularity of keto diets and all this stuff um. The the problem is is obesity continues to go up, so nobody really knows, and people – maybe we can get into this if we have enough time, but uh, seed oils is the new thing that people think is causing obesity, or s- some people do. Um, but anyway, yeah, so so this was kind of the I, – I had read some of like Gary Taubes' stuff where he's very against he, – he's a big proponent of the carb-insulin model, and he doesn't think like a calorie is a calorie. Um Basically, the people who are kind of against the calories in, calories out model, which again, kind of like re- to reiterate reiterate what Drew said is like, calorie in, calorie out model believes that every single calorie is equal, which I believe. Um, a, a calorie is just a unified uh, thermodynamic measurement of energy that is trapped in food. What... So, so what people in the, the camp of a calorie is a calorie, it's calories in, calories out will tell you is like, it's excess calories that cause obesity. What people in the carb insulin model will tell you is that the source of the calorie and its effect on hormones and how those hormones then drive either fat accumulation or fat breakdown and other kind of metabolic factors influences how obese or not somebody may get so you may have somebody in that camp who's a big proponent of like a high fat diet who's like yeah you can eat 5000 calories of fat a day and because it's not spiking your insulin and it's not driving energy into fat cells like carbohydrate does then you're fine and you'll just melt fat away again whether that's true or not i don't i can't speak well enough to Um, but somebody in in the carb uh, calorie in calorie out model would look at that and say no you can't eat 2500 extra calories of fat and expect to just stay like this lean mean machine because you're not spiking insulin that's kind of the, just the main disagreement between the two camps and maybe we can talk a little bit about um or, or you can kind of go off that I, I don't want to ramble too long
1: yeah so i think that's a good framing and you know i would say just as a general point on nutrition i think nutrition whether it's a Bachelor's degree or master's degree. I think one thing that it kind of lacks is like the rigor in defending arguments and positions, and just unifying all of the things that you learn. Um, because I think we learn about insulin, we learn about all these different diseases, but then you know it's not until your like clinical experience, if you choose to have one and go off to become a dietitian, that you even really have like experience with trying to help people lose weight and tying all the knowledge together, it's, it's really pretty crazy that, you know, in school for nutrition, you're not really learning about weight loss and how to structure a weight, uh, maintenance, uh, diet for somebody. Um, which is just like always shocking to, to people. But yeah, I think the framing that you made for the argument is, is a good one. And right. The, um, carb insulin model, group thinks that, um, basically glucose or sucrose or fructose is, um, responsible for weight gain independent of calories. And that's really the, the framing. Um, and so I think Lane Norton kind of gets a bad rap and, um, he kind of says like, oh, sugar doesn't cause obesity. And what he's saying is it's not causing obesity independent of the calorie content. So he's not saying, like, go off and have, you know, as much sugar as you want because, you know, it doesn't matter. Basically, what he's saying is, like, as long as it fits into your calorie budget, it's not going to cause increases in weight. Whether it's going to have different health effects, you know, you getting 200 grams per day from Skittles versus, you know, uh, white rice, brown rice, whatever carb source is another story, The health effects. But in terms of weight management um, it doesn't seem to matter that much uh, which is kind of shocking to fully grasp um, and they do a lot of studies as well where they swap complex carb and simple carbs and then also because simple carbs don't have the fiber content they will add in like extra fiber so if you match complex carbs for simple carbs no change in weight as long as calories and protein are equated, and then also, if you have a high fat diet versus a high carb diet, as long as protein and fiber are equated you 're not going to see differences in um, outcomes in terms of uh, in terms of weight
0: yeah, and I think this was actually the center of our argument from this week where we we realized I think we' were just kind of talking past each other and talking about different things where um goes back to the just different interests in the application of nutrition for the two of us Um, whereas like you're working with athletes you need to be concerned that they're just getting the calories that they need in the first place and you're also working with at the end of the day athletes are just people so you need to a, a big thing for you is like not putting certain foods on a pedestal or not feeling like they can't can or can't have certain foods for you you care more about you know you know what? Hey, I've got this, this baseball player and you know, he's expending like 1200 calories a day in the off season, just working out super hard. Uh, I need to make sure he keeps his weight up. Um, if that means he likes to have, you know, a pint of ice cream or half pint of ice cream, uh, each night. And if you know what it fits into his macros and then, then so be it. Like, I'm not going to tell him not to given his lifestyle and his performance needs. Uh, The kind of study example that you proposed just now is something we talked about earlier in the week. Where I'm more interested in, so say yeah, like we said, if you had two groups and you swap the carb source in one group from like quinoa with Skittles, uh, so one group's eating quinoa and the associated protein and fiber that comes with that quinoa, and the other group is just eating Skittles in place of the carbohydrate. So then you have to supplement the the fiber and protein that is coming from the quinoa to make it everything equal uh calorically and in terms of the macronutrients just the, the source of the carbohydrate differs if you do if you, if you actually did that study over like six weeks um yeah i'm sure you probably wouldn't see any real uh significant changes in weight between the two groups which for your use case is uh interesting and useful to know for athletes where i where i just get more interested in it is like on the lower level not um, kind of the more biochemical level like okay if you just if you just carry that out then for 60 years and and we kept doing this like what is the effects of all that simple sugar from uh uh skittles you know on kind of more like these these more biochemical molecular levels and and pulling these kind of levers like or or the artificial sweeteners or the 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 coloring like all those kind of little things i just personally find interesting and I I think that's why I was getting so so flustered about this because I was like, oh, you can't do that, like, because I was more so thinking I'm like, well, I would never do that for my goals. But it's like thinking about thinking about it in the two different contexts, um, it's a totally different conversation, and that's why I said I I think by the end of the day we kind of came out on the same end.
1: Yeah, I definitely agree, and you know, even in my case, right, the only time I would really recommend that somebody would have. A lot more empty calories is if they're really having trouble keeping weight on kind of as you mentioned um but then i would say typically i'm okay with somebody having 10 or 20 percent of their calories as like discretionary calories so it's kind of fill in with whatever you want um but generally i think it's it's believed that you should probably have you know 80 or 90 percent of your calories from whole foods uh whole food sources and You know, just because sugar is not independently causing the obesity epidemic independent of calorie content doesn't mean that it's probably not the best thing to fill your diet with as well, Um, you know, because sugar is devoid of fiber, which has far ranging uh, differences in terms of how satiated you're going to be, you know, GI health, as you're probably alluding to. And then also like, what is it displacing in the diet? You know, if you're having a ton of sugar, maybe you're not having a lot of protein proteins, very satiating. Um, so yeah, I'm definitely not proposing. Oh yeah. Just go fill your, your diet with 2000 calories of sugar or anything like that. Um, because a lot of these things are hyper palatable, right? Um, we have a lot of sugar and then refined fats. Um, and I think this could be a good time for you to kind of, uh talk about your findings with seed oils as well
0: yeah and kind of something you said in there that is just illustrative of how complicated and complex nutrition is is yeah, you know, i i think lane norton's take on you know sugar didn't cause the obesity epidemic necessarily and you know his position in the calories in calories out um camp Yes, it, it 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 all. I think I, I to me as far as I've read, um, checks out. It, it's just how far you want to take it. Like what you were saying with what would be the long term effects on like your gut microbiome if you just instead of eating quinoa, you're like I'm just going to go all my carbs from from Skittles because it fits into my macros. Like okay, but we just don't know the effects of like what will that have on your the microbial profile of your gut, and then you know, how does that change appetite going forward? How does that, what are all the downstream effects of that? So just all these other knock on things. But like you were saying with with what I found with seed oils this week, yes, this is kind of like my pet interest right now, just because I see everybody talking about it on Twitter. Um, If you haven't followed, uh, you know, people are are up in arms about uh, seed oils. So soybean oil, canola oil, safflower oil, sunflower oil. Common oils that you can find in any store in pretty much any packaged consumer good, and there's been a lot. uh, There's been like books and a lot of articles coming out, not really a ton of research papers, funnily enough, um, about how detrimental these seed oils are. And it goes all the way back to the very early 1900s when I believe Procter and Gamble they were using cottonseed oil. For a number of different things, um, it was used in like combustion engines and things like that. And uh, then eventually, I forgot what happened, but um, it kind of fell out of favor. People moved to like uh, petrol and um, they needed a way to like repurpose this cottonseed oil. Which cotton cottonseed. It's just uh, the seed of, of the cotton plant. And they basically found that they could crush it, extract the oil, and then they could hydrogenate it. Um, and turn it into what came to be known as margarine, which people used as an alternative to butter and, uh, margarine we, we found out, you know, eventually was horribly bad for heart health. It was 50% trans fats. The hydrogenation process of oils creates a lot of trans fats, which aren't good. They're very toxic. Um, so anyway, margarine and trans fats are banned in food. I I don't know if you can still buy margarine. I have no idea but this is Crisco. This is the birth of Crisco. So I just kind of, uh, you know, now that that was like the original seed oil. And now you have other seed oils uh, where the processing of them is kind of questionable. And and people have made this leap to say like, this is what's causing the obesity epidemic. These seed oils are highly toxic, highly inflammatory. And maybe they are, I have no idea. But um, I decided to kind of put to use some of the conversation we had this week and be like, all right, I had this notion of seed oils just from reading people, what people are tweeting, that they're this bad thing. I should avoid them. But, you know, let me like put my money where my mouth is after this conversation Drew and I had. And like, I'm just going to like look up and, and do more research on seed oils and like kind of form my own opinion. And what I came to is one, I found there's not been, there hasn't been a ton of studies to really test how toxic or not these seed oils are on human health. Um, it hasn't been really in the, mind of people for that long to be able to do it um not enough time has gone by where we can even really see the effects and what i've kind of come to is I, I looked up how they were processed how they were made um i'm gonna i'll go back to the beginning do i have time to go back to the beginning or you gotta you gotta jump all right i'll try to i'll try to go back um but basically these cedar rolls are made from you know taking uh you know what I think we should probably save it. This is a long topic. I don't want to ramble on. And yeah.
1: Yeah, that's fine. And yeah, what I would say on the seed oils, it's just another scapegoat of the obesity epidemic. And it's like just another ingredient. You know, it's first it's, you know, fat, then it's um, then it's sugar. And then now it's like seed oils. So like fats from seed oils. And at the end of the day, it comes down to caloric balance. And I think that people try to straw man the um that if I if it fits your macros thing that Lane gets like attributed to is like not completely what he's saying. And like people that are just saying like it doesn't matter your uh quality of food as long as it fits your macros, like don't listen to them. That is not <laughs> that is not what this is. Um, you know, you should try to eat a diet that's really high quality whole foods, but just don't get bugged out if you're eating 10 to 20% of your foods from discretionary calories that are, you know, not whole foods, or they're, you know, a little bit more processed, that's completely fine. And I think really the main purpose of having this discussion today is not to say like, like I said, these things aren't bad. Um, It's more so that If we think, okay, this food is bad and irrespective of uh, quantity, it's going to cause obesity, then it has a lot of spillover effects. Because then if it's like, okay, I have this perfect diet where I'm eating 100 percent, air quotes, clean foods, and then I decide to have um, 10 percent of my calories on a given day of whatever, a seed oil or sugar. Then a lot of people get very scared. They're like, oh, I'm going to put on fat because of this meal, irrespective of the calories, and this is going to ruin my diet. But at the end of the day, it all comes down to calories. And the dose makes the poison, so to speak. Like, yes, these foods are not completely as good for you as whole foods. They have less, you know, vitamins, minerals, fiber. But it doesn't necessarily mean that they're never foods. It doesn't mean that you can never have them. And so when we kind of create this black-white mentality around foods, it's like, well, I had that Snickers bar, so my diet is just completely screwed. It's just off the rails because that's a food I can never have. Instead of, okay, there's discretionary calories that I can kind of fit these foods into that I enjoy. So I think that's really the biggest uh, reason for having this conversation. And I think it's kind of important to like, take this huge ambiguous kind of field of nutrition and put it into like specific boxes or even you could think about it as gears and just make sure that every single gear is like completely well understood because all these gears connect to other gears. Um, and I'd say that's the, the best way to kind of frame it.
0: Yeah, no, I, I agree. And I, I think kind of where the calories in calories out model and the, carb insulin model can kind of reach some common ground. It's like Lane Norton would never recommend that, at least I don't think he would, speaking for him, Um, but I I strongly believe that he would never recommend, uh, you know, if you're going to consume 2000 calories and that's what's healthy for you, you can do it any way you want. Like, I don't think he would ever say that whether that means you eat lean meat, vegetables and fruit, or you eat donuts candy and ice cream doesn't matter because to the calories. I don't think he would say that um, because the over enough time, the downstream, the metabolic effects of those two different diets based on the source of those calories is going to have an impact on what your ultimate outcome is. and that's kind of what the, what the carb insulin model says is, is it's more focused on hormones and things like that. It's probably just overly focused on that aspect of it. And thinking um, you know you' you're you're essentially sending food in almost as messengers to, to pull these levers and push these buttons on hormones and if you can just fine tune that then you know it, it, calories don't don't matter because you're you're working at a higher level it's probably not true um, but I think that's that's kind of the takeaway the ultimate takeaway is just eat a
1: balanced diet like <laughs> <it's>, <laughs> that's exactly what it is yeah it's just eat a balanced diet you know consume Fresh fruits and vegetables, you know, lean meats. Have red meat occasionally. Um, whole grains, all of that. I mean, I think the food pyramid like kind of sucked, but honestly, the MyPlate. If if most Americans, and this is this might get James frazzled, but if most Americans just followed the MyPlate, they'd be far better off than the majority of people are. Like, just follow the MyPlate. Like you're. You probably don't need to think about it much more than that.
0: It's not going to get me frazzled. <laughs> I, mean, I
1: follow the MyPlate plate probably pretty decently
0: closely. Um, I have no idea what my plate even says anymore. I, I don't even know, but um, I'm fine. I'm not frazzled.
1: Yeah, but no, I think you know this is a kind of good, uh, good conversation worth having, and I think that we can kind of go a little bit more in depth on some of the other. You know, nutrition topics. Um, you know, I think that we had a lot of things that we we're planning on talking about today, and most of it ended up just kind of center around the kind of the discussion that we had earlier this week. So, I think you know, focusing on one topic can definitely give us some some legs in terms of talking about it. Yeah, you know,
0: I think right. we can come away from this and pick a topic to actually like dive in on for another week. I think I've been. I've honestly been so frazzled this week. I feel like we argued for 2 days straight and I'm exhausted now. And we we were going to do this last night. We didn't, neither of us even had the energy to do it cuz we spent the whole day talking about this.
1: Yeah, James is canceling all plans this weekend. Um he's just going to sleep the whole weekend and he might be he might be like stockpiling some memes too uh just for, you know, the next battle. We'll see.
0: I'll go to Shake Shack tonight, I think.
1: Yeah, calories don't matter, so. Exactly.